When an eyewitness stands up in court and identifies the person they saw commit a crime, the impact can be powerful and effective. This dramatic testimony can be sincere and honest. It can also be wrong and tragically lead to wrongful convictions, lifelong incarcerations, and even the death penalty. But how can this happen? The witness is telling the court what they truly believe and remember. And therein lies the problem. Memory. The often fuzzy and malleable recollections of events in the past. In the latest edition of Psychological Science in the Public Interest, researchers look at the problem with eyewitness misidentifications in the courtroom and explain why prosecutors and law enforcement should test a witness's memory of a suspect only once. I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you're listening to Under the Cortex, the podcast supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. Joining us is John Wickstead, a researcher at the University of California at San Diego and first author on this article. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thanks for having me. What inspired you and your co-authors to study this problem with eyewitness identification in the first place? Well, it turns out that in many cases of wrongful convictions based on eyewitness misidentification in the courtroom, if you go back and look at what the witness said the first time their memory was tested by the police, usually early in the investigation, it turns out that they often, perhaps most of the time, perhaps a large majority of the time, said something other than, I'm positive that's the guy who did it, which is what they end up saying in court a year later or so in front of the jury. That's what the jury hears. But it often starts off as something much more inconclusive. And normally, an inconclusive test of forensic evidence, like a DNA test or a fingerprint test, if it comes back inconclusive, that's the end of it. Sometimes eyewitness evidence comes out inconclusive on the first test, but unlike the other kinds of forensic evidence, they don't stop there. They don't conclude that, well, we can't make their memory trace stronger. There's nothing we can do about that form of evidence. We should go look for other evidence. Instead, they test memory again, not realizing that that, that first test not only tests memory, it also contaminates their memory. And so case after case, we saw this pattern. And then there's one particular case playing out right now in Texas, a, a death penalty case, a man named Charles Don Flores, where on, if you look back at what the witness said on the first test, the witness said it was a white man with shoulder length hair. This was on the day of the crime. She saw a man who fits that description, two men actually, they both were white men with long hair, go into the garage, into the neighbor's house where a murder was committed later that day. They got one of the guys. He was a white guy with long hair. The witness identified him immediately with high confidence. He had a weapon that matched the murder weapon and ammunition. He confessed to the crime. He served 16 years in prison and is a free man. The accomplice, also described as a white male with long hair, they weren't sure who he was. They hypnotized the witness to calm her down before asking her to try to identify the accomplice from a lineup. That's why this case has long been thought of as a, an example of hypnosis, a kind of junk science contributing to wrongful convictions. But really, during the hypnosis, she continued to say it was a white man with long hair. After hypnosis, she made a composite sketch of a white man with long hair. They then had her look at a lineup, which contained their suspect, they thought a man named Charles Don Flores might be the accomplice. The problem is he's a Hispanic man with basically a crew cut. <laughs> he doesn't match the description. Wow. Not, not much at all there. No. 
And, you know, you look at the composite sketch that she made with a police artist and Charles Don Flores' face. I mean, there's no comparison. And quite reasonably, when they showed her the lineup, she rejected the lineup. Every person in it. That's right. And one of those faces was Charles Don Flores. That's the only person the police cared about. The others were just fill innocent fillers who were also Hispanic males with short hair. But but she looked at Charles Don Flores' face and quite reasonably said, no, these guys don't match my memory, rejecting the lineup. That was the first memory test. Now, an important thing to understand about an initial memory test where the witness says, I'm rejecting this lineup, I don't see him. A lot of people think that that gives you no information about innocence or guilt. But actually, when that happens, it is evidence of innocence. It's not proof of innocence, but it's evidence of innocence. So that's what the eyewitness evidence in this case indicates. Yet, of course, as happens over and over again, by the time of trial, this witness was 110% sure that that was the guy she saw climb under the garage that morning. And he was convicted largely on the basis of that evidence. In Texas, you're as guilty as the trigger man if you were an accomplice. So he was found guilty and sentenced to death, and he's lost all of his appeals. And the case is special, and it is what really motivated me to write this paper and bring this team together to do so when I saw how how wrong they think about eyewitness evidence in the criminal justice system. Literally, in this case, this man is probably going to soon be executed. The eyewitness evidence properly understood points in the direction of innocence, not guilt. That's the first test. But the eyewitness, the contaminated eyewitness evidence is what the jury heard, and it pointed to his guilt. And they quite reasonably found him guilty. She's a very credible witness. Uh, nobody knew really at that time that her memory had been contaminated. We know now that, that it's inevitably contaminated by the first test. That's why you can't test memory more than once. It's that case that inspired me and my co-authors to write this paper. Um, but it's not just that case. It happens over and over and over again. It's the main reason why people think eyewitness identification is unreliable. They're focusing on the last test, not the first test. And how does that reconcile in the witness's mind eventually? If they said, well, the first time you were asked to identify, you, you identified something completely different with no physical characteristics with a person in front of you now. How were you able to change from I'm confident about this to I'm now confident about something else? Does that get reconciled in their mind or is it just kind of pushed back? It's absolutely amazing. The witness will always have a story that makes sense to them about how that happened um, because they have to explain it to themselves. They have to make sense of what seems like a contradiction. And there's always a story. A common one is I was nervous and confused on the first test, but then I calmed down and I thought more carefully about it and I realized it was somebody else. And a jury hears that and a judge hear that, hears that and they just go, oh, makes sense. And they ignore what happened on the first test, but it makes no sense. That's not what happened. What happened is their memory was contaminated by that first test. And that's why later that face seems more familiar. It's because on the first test, when you make a decision about a face, even when you say it's not him, you are memorizing that face unintentionally. So when you see that face again, you're at high risk of getting a strong familiarity signal, trying to explain that familiarity signal to yourself. You'll sometimes say, oh, I was nervous on that first test, but now yeah, this is the guy who did the crime. So not only does the witness make sense of it with a story like that, once the jury hears that story, it makes sense to them too, and makes sense to the judge, and it just makes sense to everybody. They don't know that, in truth, it makes no sense at all. There's a famous study where 
participants were asked to come into a psychological lab and they were asked some general questions first. One of them is, hey, did you ride this particular ride at Disneyland when you were there? And no such ride exists. And they're like, no, no, we didn't ride that. Come back a year later, they asked, oh, last time you went to Disney, what did you do? And then they'll go back and say, oh, I rode this ride that never existed. So it's not just in the courtroom. Human memory can be very malleable. And that's not taken into account in the criminal justice system? Well, not really. Um, and, and there's lots of examples like that in the research literature. And so most of my career, I was studying the basic mechanisms of memory, just how memory works at a mechanistic level without regard for memory in the real world. And a lot has been learned about how memory works, but not a lot of that has been considered in the context of eyewitness memory. So, so one of the things we do in this paper is we take the current understanding of how recognition memory works, and we just think about what happens when a witness makes a decision from a lineup. And it doesn't matter what the decision is. Those basic mechanisms explain why making a decision about a face irretrievably implants a memory of those faces in the witness's brain. It's contaminated forensic memory evidence from that point forward. So we explain theoretically how it's inescapable, that that's going to happen. And then we point out how it makes sense of some surprising discoveries, which is that very often on the first test, the witness did something other than conclusively identify the suspect. Often they rejected the lineup as they did in the Charles Don Flores case. It helps to make sense of why later on they're sitting in court saying, I'm positive that's the guy who did it. The seed of the problem, the source of the problem is the witness's memory was infected by the representation of that suspect, even if it's an innocent suspect. It's in her brain. You can't take it out of her brain. There's no testing memory a second time in a way that is fair to the suspect. So many, many, possibly most misidentifications that they attribute to the unreliability of eyewitness memory are better understood as actually the witness was pretty reliable. The witness was making it clear that that was an inconclusive outcome. And the mistake is being made by someone else, not the witness. The mistake is being made by the criminal justice system that keeps testing their memory, especially at the worst possible time in court at the time of trial. And in my experience, jurors completely understand that you should focus on the first test. You know what? Everybody seems to get it once you explain it to them. The problem is this knowledge has not been disseminated, which is you know, why we wrote this paper and to try to disseminate this understanding. So to wrap things up then, what are the recommendations that you would make right now? Are there things left to study that we don't understand? Are there additional activities that can be taken at the state, local, national level? What's the take-home action plan that would make this a better situation? Well, as we point out in this paper, the take-home action plan, and, and as I mentioned earlier, is so incredibly simple. You don't have to retrain your police officers. You don't have to do anything other than make sure everybody, judges down to police officers, prosecutors, that you can only test memory once. And every test after that is a test of contaminated forensic memory evidence. Everybody just has to understand that. Now, the problem is getting that message out is extremely difficult. There's like 18,000 independent police and sheriff's departments in the U.S. There are judges all over the land. There are so many people who have to get that message. Um, and how do you 
how do you get it to them? How, how, there's no like central source that you can go to and they're going to listen to you make this argument. It's really, it's not like it is in England where there's a central body that dictates policy for all police departments in, in the UK. It's not like that. You know, in the UK, you'd have to convince one body, you know, to, to make sure people test memory only once. But in the US, you have to convince, you know, thousands of different police chiefs and sheriffs and, and, all the prosecutors. So it's, it's a communication problem that's a real, really difficult one. And um, again, it's one reason why we, I pulled together these leading researchers to write this paper to make it clear that there's a scientific consensus on this point. It's why we gave the title, made the title so simple and straightforward. It's why I'm doing this podcast with you. It's the most important thing. It's also the hardest thing. And there is work left to be done. You asked about that. So that paper that we wrote is all about what we agree on. We don't agree on everything, actually. We disagree about a lot. And our paper isn't about our disagreements. It's about our agreement that you can only test memory once. But there's work to be done. So for example, my reading of the evidence is that contrary to what almost everybody on the planet thinks, eyewitness memory is actually highly reliable when you address that question the way you would with every other kind of forensic evidence. So if, if you ask, is DNA evidence reliable? You don't mean, is it reliable if you test it improperly and or contaminate the evidence? That's not what you mean by that question, obviously, if you test it improperly, if the, if the lab doesn't know what they're doing, or if it's the evidence has been contaminated, it's not going to be reliable. What you implicitly mean is, is it reliable when you test it properly and it's not contaminated? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. No one disputes the fact that, that DNA evidence is reliable under those conditions. But work still needs to be done on, is, is it also the case that eyewitnesses' memory is reliable when you test it properly and it's uncontaminated? That is that first test. I say yes. My co-authors are a little less certain of that. And so there's a lot of work to be done on that point. But on this question of of whether you can test memory a second time? No, there's no, there's, there's nobody. I don't think there's going to be anybody. I'll be interested to find out. I don't think any court is ever going to get a memory expert testifying that, no, those authors are incorrect. You can fairly test memory more than once without contaminating it and in a way that's prejudicial to the suspect. I don't think there's going to be anybody. There's a consensus on that. What's missing is a broad dissemination of that consensus and an understanding of how important it is. And this Charles Don Flores case, they are soon, I'm thinking, going to execute a man where the evidence that most convinced the jury that he's guilty actually points in the direction of innocence. Well, we certainly have our work cut out for us then, and I will uh, do my best to get this podcast out as widely as possible and uh, encourage our listeners to read the report in detail I'd like to thank you for joining us. This is Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science. I've been speaking with John Wickstead with the University of California at San Diego. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. In the classroom, whether in person or on screen, content matters. But not if students are disinterested or disengaged. At Macmillan Learning Psychology, our authors are committed educators who know firsthand what teachers are facing today. That experience guides not only the books they write, but the interactive learning and assessment tools they help create. No matter how you teach, we can help you captivate your students. Macmillan Learning Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.